You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Earthman's Burden by R.F. Starzl, Part 1. Danny O'Lear was playing blackjack when the Colonel's orderly found him. He hastily buttoned his tunic and in a few minutes, alert and very military, was standing at attention in the little office on the ground floor of the Denver IFP barracks. His swanky blue uniform fitted without a wrinkle. His little round skull cap was perched at the regulation angle. Olea, said the colonel, they're having a little trouble at the Blue River Station, Mercury. Trouble? Uh-huh, Olea said placidly. The colonel looked him over. He saw a man past his first youth. Thirty-five, possibly forty. O'Lear was well-knit, sandy-haired, not over five feet six inches in height. His hair was close-cropped, his features phlegmatic, his eyes a little blue with thick, short, light-coloured lashes, his teeth excellent. A scar, dead white on a brown cheekbone, was a reminder of an encounter with one of the numerous Saurians of Venus. "'I'm sending you,' explained the Colonel, "'because you're more experienced.' and not like some of these kids, always spoiling for a fight. There's something queer about this affair. Moronis, factor of the Blue River Post, reports that his assistant has disappeared, vanished, simply gone. But only three months ago, the former factor, Morones, was his assistant, disappeared. No hide nor hair of him. Morones reported to the company, the Mercurian Trading Concession, and they called me. Something, they think, is rotten. Yes, sir. I guess I needn't tell you, the colonel went on, that you have to use tact. People don't seem to appreciate the force. What with the lousy politicians begrudging every cent we get, and a bunch of suspicious foreign powers afraid we'll get too good. Yeah, I know. Tact. That's my motto. No rough stuff. He saluted and turned on his heel. Just a minute, the colonel had arisen. He was a fine, ascetic type of man. He held out his hand. Goodbye, O'Lear. Watch yourself. When O'Lear had taken his matter-of-fact departure, the colonel ran his fingers through his whitening hair. In the past several months, he had sent five of his best men on dangerous missions, missions requiring tact, courage, and so it seemed, very much luck. And only two of the five had come back. In those days, the interplanetary flying police did not enjoy the tremendous prestige it does now. The mere presence of a member of the force is enough, in these humdrum days of interplanetary law and order, to quell the most serious disturbance anywhere in the solar system. But it was not always thus. This astounding prestige had to be earned with blood and courage, in many a desperate and lonely battle, and to be snatched from the dripping jaws of death. O'Lear checked over his flying ovoid, got his bearings from the port astronomer, set his coordinate navigator and shoved off. Two weeks later he plunged into the thick, misty atmosphere on the dark side of Mercury. Ancient astronomers had long suspected that Mercury always presented the same side to the Sun, though they were ignorant that the little planet had water and air. Its sunward side is a dreary, sterile, hot and hostile desert. Its dark side is warm and humid, and resembles to some extent the better-known jungles and swamps of Venus, but it has a favoured belt, some hundreds of miles wide, around its equator, where the enormous sun stays perpetually in one spot on the horizon. Sunward is the blinding glare of the desert, 
on the dark side, enormous banks of lowering clouds. On the dark margin of this belt are the ring storms, violent thunderstorms that never cease. They are the source of the mighty rivers which irrigate the tropical habitable belt and plunge out, boiling, far into the desert. Aaliyah's little ship passed through the ring storms, and he did not take over the controls until he recognised the familiar mark of the trading company, a blue comet on the aluminium roof of one of the larger buildings. Visibility was good that day, but despite the unusual clarity of the atmosphere, there was a suggestion of the sinister about the lifeless scene, the vast, irresistible river, the riotously coloured jungle roof. The vastness of nature dwarfed man's puny work. One horizon flashed incessantly with livid lightning, the other was one blinding blaze of the nearby sun, and almost lost below in the savage landscape was man's symbol of possession, a few metal sheds in a clear fenced space of a few acres. Aaliyah cautiously checked speed, skimmed over the turbid surface of the great river, and set her down on the ground within the compound. With his pencil-like ray tube in his hand, he stepped out of the hatchway. A Mercurian native came out of the residence presently, his hands together in the peace sign. For the benefit of earth lovers, whose only knowledge of Mercury is derived from the teleview screen, it should be explained that Mercurians are not human, even if they do slightly resemble us. They hatch from eggs, pass one life phase as frog-like creatures in the rivers, and in the adult stage turn more human in appearance. But their skin remains green and fish belly white. There is no hair on their warty heads, their eyes have no lids and have a peculiar dead staring look when they sleep and they carry a peculiar fishy odour with them at all times. This Mercurian looked at O'Lear seemingly without interest. Where is Marones? the officer inquired. Marones, the native piped in English. Inside, he busy. All right, I'm coming in. He busy. Yeah, move over. Though the native was a good six inches taller than O'Lear, he stepped aside when the officer pushed him. Men and Mercurians had a way of doing that when they looked into those colourless eyes. They were not as phlegmatic as the face. Morones was sitting in his office. Well, I'm here, O'Lear announced, helping himself to a chair. Yes, Sally, who invited you? O'Lear looked at the factor, levelly appraising him. A big man, fat but the fat well distributed. Satinine face, dark hair, dark and bristly beard. The kind that thrive where other men became weak and fever-ridden. Also to judge by his present appearance, an unpleasant companion and a nasty enemy. Don't see what difference it makes to you, Aaliyah answered in his own good time, but the company invited me. They would, Marones growled. His eyes flicked to the door and quick as a cat, Aaliyah leapt to one side, his ray pencil in his hand. Marones had not moved, and in the door stood the native, motionless and without expression. Marones laughed nastily. Kind of jumpy, eh? What is it, Nargul? Nargul burst into a burbling succession of native phrases which Aaliyah had some difficulty following. Nargul wants to move your ship into one of the sheds, but the activator key's gone. Yeah, I know, Aaliyah assented casually. I got it. Leave the ship till I get ready. Then I'll put it away. Get out, Nargle. The native hesitated. Then on the lift of Marone's eyebrows departed. 
O'Lear shifted a chair so that he could watch both Marones and the door. He reopened the conversation easily. Well, we understand each other. You don't want me here, and I'm here. So what are you going to do about it? Marones flushed. He struggled to keep his temper down. What do you want to know? What happened to the factor who was here before you? I don't know. The translucent wasn't coming in like it should. Samus went out into the jungle for a palaver with the chiefs and to find out why. And he didn't come back. You didn't find out where he went? I just told you, Marone said impatiently. He went out to see the native chiefs. Alone? Of course alone. There are only two of us earthmen here. Couldn't abandon this post to the Wogglies, could we? Not that it'd make much difference, except for Nargle. None'll come here. You never heard of him again? No, damn it, no. Say, didn't they have any dumber strappers around than you? I told you once, I tell you again. I never saw hide nor hair of him after that. All right, all right, Ali regarded Maroons placidly. And so you took the job of factor and radioed for an assistant. And when the assistant came, he disappeared. Maroons grunted. He went out to get acquainted with the country and didn't come back. O'Lear masked his close scrutiny of the factor under his idle and expressionless gaze. He was not ready to jump to the conclusion that Marone's uneasiness sprang from a sense of guilt. Guilty or not, he had a right to feel uneasy. The man would be dense, indeed, if he did not realise that he was in line for suspicion. And he did not look dense, indeed, he was obviously a shrewd character. Let me see your lucine. Marone's rose. Despite his bulk, he stepped nimbly. He had the nimbleness of a Saturnian bear, which is great, as some of the earlier explorers learned to their dismay. That's the first sensible question you've asked, Moraine snorted. Take a look at our Lucene. Ha, huh, have a good look. He led the way across the compound, waved his hand before the door of a strongly built shed in a swift, definite combination, and the door opened, revealing the interior. He waved invitingly. You go first, O'Lear said. With a sneer, Marone stepped in. You're safe, boy. You're safe. O'Lear looked at the small pile on the floor in astonishment. Instead of the beautiful, semi-transparent chips of translucine, the dried sap of a Mercurian tree, which is invaluable to the world as the source of an unfailing cancer cure, there were only a few dirty, dried-up shavings, hardly worth shipping back to Earth for refining. The full significance of the affair began to dawn on the officer. The translucine trees grew only in this favoured section of mercury, and the Earth Company had a monopoly of the entire supply. Justly, for only on Earth was cancer known, and it was on the increase. That small, almost useless pile on the floor connoted a terrible drug famine for the human race. Marone's smile might have been a grin of satisfaction at O'Lear's question. Is that all you've brought since the last freighter was here? It is, he replied. The last load went off six months ago, and this here shed should be full to the eaves. There'll be hell to pay. It may not be tactful, O'Lear remarked, but if you've got your takings cached away somewhere to hold up the earth for a big ransom, you'd better come across right now. You can't get by with it, fellow. You should have close to six million dollars worth of it, and you can't get away. You just can't. Marones controlled his anger with an effort. Like any dumb strapper, you've got your mind made up, ain't you? Well, go ahead. Get something on me. Here, I was almost set to give you a lead that might get you somewhere. 
and you come along shooting off, trying to make out I stole the loosen and killed those two fellows, eh? Go ahead, get something on me, but not on company grounds. You're leaving now. With that, he made a lunge at the officer, quite beside himself with rage. Aaliyah could have burnt him down, but he was far too experienced for such an amateurish trick. Instead, he ducked to evade Morone's blow, but the big man was as agile as a panther. In mid-air, so it seemed, he changed his direction of attack. The big fist swept downward, striking O'Lear's head a glancing blow. But the men of the force have always been fighters, whatever their shortcomings as diplomats. O'Lear countered with a strong right to the body, thudding solidly for Maroon's softness did not go far below the surface. The factor whirled instantly, but not quite fast enough to bar the door. O'Lear was out, and inside his ship in a few seconds slamming the hatch. Tact, he grinned to himself, inserting the activator key. Tact is what a fella needs. The little space flyer shot aloft until the tiny figure of the factor stopped shaking its fists and entered the residence. The post had a flyer of its own, of course, but Moran's was too wise to use it in pursuit. O'Lear considered what was best to do. Of course he could have placed Moran's under arrest. Could still do it, but that would not solve the mystery of the two deaths and the missing Lucene. If the choleric factor was really guilty of the crimes, it would be better to let him go his way in the hope that he would betray himself. O'Lear regretted that he had not kept his tongue under closer curb, but there was no use regretting. Perhaps, after all, he ought to turn back to pump Morones for some helpful information. His mind made up, he descended again until he was hovering a few feet up from the ground. Morones, he called. Morones! He held the hatch open. Morones came to the door of the residence. He had a tube in his hand, a long-range weapon. Morones, O'Lear declared pompously, I place you under arrest. The effect was instantaneous. Morones lifted the tube and a glimmering, iridescent beam sprang out. The ship was up and away in a second, lurching and shivering uncomfortably every time the beam struck it in its upward flight. A good few seconds continued impingement. But a miss is as good as a light year. Miles high, O'Lear looked into his talons. Morones had laid aside his tube and was working with an instrument, like a twin transit. Plotting the ship's course, naturally, O'Lear set his course for the Earth and kept on it for a good 24 hours. Morones, if he was still watching him, would think he'd gone back for reinforcements. Such an assumption would be incredible now, but that was before the IFP had achieved its present tremendous reputation. Beyond observation range, O'Lear curved back towards Mercury again and was almost inside its atmosphere when he made a discovery that caused him to lose for a moment his natural indifference and to clamp his jaws in anger. The current oxygen tank became empty and when he removed it from the rack and put in a new one, he found someone had let out all of this essential gas. The valve of every one of the spare tanks had been opened. Had O'Lear actually continued on his way to Earth, he would have perished miserably of suffocation long before he could have returned to the Mercurian atmosphere. The officer whistled tunelessly through his teeth as he considered this fact. The visibility was by this time normal, that is, so poor, it would have been possible to land very close to the trading station. O'Lear was taking no chances, however, and came down a good three earth miles away. The egg-shaped hull sank through the glossy, brilliant treetops, through twisted vines, 
and was buried in the dank gloom of the jungle. Here it might remain hidden for a hundred years. The twilight of the jungle was almost darkness. Landmarks were not, but Elia made a few small inconspicuous marks on trees with his knife until he came to an outcropping rock. He had noticed the scar-like white of it slashing through the jungle from the air and used it as a guide to direct his stealthy return to the trading post. His belt chronometer told him it would be about time for Marones to get up from his night's sleep. A little discreet observation might tell much. Long before he reached the compound, Alia heard the rushing of the great blue river in its headlong plunge to the corrosive heat of the desert, and then, through the mists, he glimpsed the white metal walls of the company's shed. He climbed a tree and for a long time watched patiently, lying prone on a limb. Blood-sucking insects tortured him and flat tree lice resembling discs with legs crawled over him inquisitively. O'Lear tolerated them with stoic indifference until at last his patience was rewarded. Morones was coming out of the compound. He was alone and obviously did not suspect that he was being watched, for he stepped out briskly. Once in the jungle, he walked even faster, watching out warily for the panther-like carnivora that were the most dangerous to man on Mercury. O'Lear shinned it to the ground and followed cautiously. Marones had his raid tube with him, and as any traveller in these jungles did, O'Lear could and did draw fast, but a dead trader would be valueless to him in his investigation, so he stalked him with every faculty strained to maintain complete silence. Often in occasional clearings, where the brown darkness grew less, he had to grovel on the slimy ground, picking up large bacteria that could be seen with the naked eye, and which left tiny, festering red marks on the skin. Mercury has no snakes. The trader seemed to be heading for higher ground, for the path led ever upward, though not far from the tossing waters of the river, and then suddenly he disappeared. Olea did not immediately hurry after him. A canny fugitive, catching sight of his pursuer, might suddenly drop to the ground and squirm to the side of the trail, there to wait and catch his pursuer as he passed. So O'Lear sidled into the all but impenetrable underbush and slowly, with infinite caution, wormed his way along. End of section 13